Ohio Nuclear Madness. As nuclear interests keep grabbing taxpayer money for the false hope of small modular nuclear reactors, they're pushing for state legislation that will grant them the power to get absolutely everything they want. And in Ohio, underinformed legislators are in the process of letting them have it. So when you hear a genuine expert explain the most common nuke-promoted delusions about Ohio House Bill 434, and he tells you... The way this is being billed and sold, the little public discussion that's taken place at all, is that the Ohio Nuclear Development Authority would be a little NRC. They would have NRC authority within Ohio over the construction, design, planning of new nuclear power plants. They also would have eminent domain, which suggests to me that they would want the power to condemn land for the siting of facilities as well as transmission lines. We're talking about a very stealthy kind of proposal that's making its way well beneath the radar. Well, when veteran environmental attorney Terry Lodge points out these and other dangers inherent in legislation pending in Ohio, you begin to understand that this is just another planned assault on environmental sanity intended to keep us all in that deadly radioactive seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear meltdown at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we learn of multiple nuclear problems in Ohio with two veteran frontline fighters against nuclear madness, environmental attorney Terry Lodge and Pat Morida, chair of the Ohio Sierra Club Nuclear Issues Committee. We'll also hear from Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, as well as nuclear news from around the world and more honest nuclear information than will be mentioned during the hearings on the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol building. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, June 14, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. On June 13, Guatemala became the 62nd country to ratify the United Nations Landmark Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, or TPNW. With this ratification, Central America becomes the first entire region of the world to join the TPNW, with Belize, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, and Panama all signatories. Guatemala's foreign minister, Mario Bucaro, stated... Collective security can only be achieved through the prohibition and total elimination of nuclear weapons. 
The International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, was the prime mover behind the UN passage of the treaty. This weekend, June 18 and 19, ICANN is holding the Nuclear Ban Forum in Vienna, bringing together social change innovators, educators, and nuclear weapons experts from around the world. But there is one weakness in ICANN's platform. And Beyond Nuclear's Linda Pence-Gunter, our regular commentator, points it out in this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. Most of you listening probably know that the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which first came into force in 1970, contains a clause, Article 4, with the following language. Nothing in this treaty shall be interpreted as affecting the inalienable right of all the parties to the treaty to develop research, production and use of nuclear energy for peaceful purposes without discrimination. It's considered the cornerstone of the treaty, and yet it's one of the most obvious stumbling blocks to achieving the overall purpose of the treaty, the elimination of nuclear weapons. That goal is enshrined in Article 6 of the treaty, which requires steps towards complete nuclear disarmament, which obviously isn't exactly happening, even if the number of nuclear weapons in the world has been significantly reduced since its obscene peak of more than 60,000 during the height of the Cold War to just under 13,000 today. Still enough to destroy planet Earth many times over. But what many of us perhaps aren't aware of is that the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, known as the TPNW, and ratified on January 22, 2021, also contains a clause in the preamble preserving the ownership and proliferation of nuclear power. It reads, emphasizing that nothing in this treaty shall be interpreted as affecting the inalienable right of its state's parties to develop research, production and use of nuclear energy for peaceful purposes without discrimination. The exact same language as the NPT. It's a problem, not only because using and exporting nuclear power technology simply kicks the door back open to the development of nuclear weapons, thereby undermining the purpose of the TPNW. It's also a problem because the basis on which the TPNW was undertaken was to approach nuclear weapons abolition from the humanitarian rather than the policy perspective. In emphasizing what nuclear weapons actually do to people and who they harm the most, the groups who pushed for the ban treaty, including the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, who accordingly won the Nobel Peace Prize for their efforts, made the impossible possible. The ban treaty was not only signed by enough countries, but ratified by the requisite 50, a number that continues to climb so that it could become law. But can it ever work as long as nuclear power development remains on the table? More than 45 groups led by the Manhattan Project for a Nuclear Free World, and including my organization Beyond Nuclear, have signed onto a position page paper urging the removal of the nuclear power clause from the TPNW. The paper will be delivered to the TPNW meeting of the state's parties next week in Vienna. As the paper argues, the mining of uranium disproportionately harms indigenous peoples, the very demographic the TPNW is intent on protecting. Given that respect for the rights of indigenous peoples is enshrined in the treaty, and that 70% of the world's uranium resources are in the lands inhabited by indigenous peoples, it is essential that the production both of uranium as well as the end product that is radioactive waste be eliminated. And that means an end to nuclear power as well as nuclear weapons. As with all these issues, it's complicated. 
Early efforts to keep the nuclear power clause out of the TPNW failed largely due to pressure from African and South American countries. Do they want nuclear power? Yes and no, but more importantly, they did not want to find themselves once again the have-nots dictated to by largely Western powers who have both nuclear power and nuclear weapons. Clearly, a sea change of thinking needs to happen so that nuclear power is not seen as some sort of reward for forswearing nuclear weapons. It's one more rock to push up the hill, but as our parents used to tell us, many hands make light work. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat, and that's this week's hot story. Linda will be in Vienna and is one of the presenters on the panel, Nuclear Winter is Coming Closer. That and all the other panels at the Nuclear Band Forum will be live-streamed for free. We'll have a link up on the website to where you can register, nuclearhotseat.com. The episode is 573. As we look at the world, nuclear disaster is only a heartbeat away. In Ukraine, state nuclear power operator Energoatom said Russian cruise missiles came dangerously close to the South Ukraine nuclear power plant in the early morning hours of June 5th. It said that the missile flew critically low and that Russian targeteers, quote, still do not understand that even the smallest fragment of a missile that can hit a working power unit can cause a nuclear catastrophe and radiation leak. And here in the U.S., on June 8, a military aircraft of unspecified type crashed in California's Imperial County, about 30 miles north of the Mexican border. Five people on board were presumed dead, and preliminary reports mentioned nuclear material on board. Other than an immediately issued U.S. military denial saying that no nuclear material was on board the crashed plane, nothing further has been heard. U.S. scientists have found that small modular nuclear reactors may produce higher volumes and greater complexity of radioactive waste because they are naturally less efficient. The scientists say that waste streams could be as much as 30 times higher than conventional plants and will make SMNRs more costly. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission has reversed a decision to allow the Turkey Point nuclear plant near Miami to continue to run for another 30 years. In Japan, Tokyo Electric Power Company's attempt to resume removal work of pipes contaminated with highly radioactive materials at Fukushima was again interrupted for the second time when the equipment to do the work broke down. The chain-shaped cutting tool became stuck in the pipe the surface of which was found to have a radiation dose of 3 sieverts per hour, which is high enough to kill a person if exposed to radiation for several hours. Members of the European Parliament, the Environmental and Economy Committees, have called for lawmakers to block the inclusion of gas and nuclear as a green investment. The Commission controversially included nuclear and gas in the so-called EU taxonomy for green investment against explicit advice of its own scientific experts. It comes up for a vote in early July. And in Australia, amid the opposition's call for the new government to make nuclear power part of its energy plan, Energy Minister Chris Bowen shouted, They really want to argue that? Bring it on! It's complete junk! We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first... Nuclear weapons, reactors, uranium mining, radioactive waste, accidents, permissible, put that in quotes, radiation exposures, the list of nuclear dangers and disasters is as endless as plutonium. 
which remains dangerously radioactive, for 240,000 years. But despite the known risks, this industry perpetuates itself, making obscene amounts of money while threatening the future of the planet and of life itself. You don't hear about this in general mainstream media, and that's why you need Nuclear Hot Seat, to help you know what's going on in the nuclear world and what you can do about it. We're dedicated to giving you the nuclear stories you can't find in general media and provide them with context and continuity so you can understand the full picture. We cover not only what the industry is doing, but how brave activists around the world are fighting back and how any one of us, yes, even you, can take action towards stopping the nuclear madness. But we need your help to keep doing this work. Support. Donations. And we make it easy for you to do so. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red Donate button, and help us with a donation of any amount. If you're feeling the financial pinch these days, and who isn't, you can set up a recurring donation for as little as $5 a month. Same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S. So how about sitting down and buying Nuclear Hot Seat a cup of coffee? That's a metaphor. We won't be drinking any coffee, but we will be working to get you the hottest, most important nuclear stories possible. So if you value in-depth information on nuclear issues from that all-important, different perspective, please help us keep doing this work and do what you can now. And know know that however much you are able to help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. The hydra-headed nuclear industry manipulates perceptions of its actions and generates legislation to swallow up billions of dollars in public funds, create the power to expand as they wish, while refusing to clean up the radioactive messes it has already made. In today's interview, we hear a bit about all of that. I talk with two veteran Ohio opponents of nuclear about the latest set of problems in that state including dangerous proposed legislation and cleanup failures. Terry Lodge is an environmental attorney, and Pat Morida is chair of the Ohio Sierra Club Nuclear Issues Committee. We spoke on Friday, June 3, 2022. Pat Morida and Terry Lodge, thanks so much for joining us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. The pleasure always. Thank you for having us. There's a lot of ground to cover today because there's a lot happening in the nuclear world when it comes to Ohio. Let's start with House Bill 434, which passed the Ohio House and is being heard by the Senate Energy and Public Utilities Commission. What is this bill supposed to do? What are some of the problems with it? And why do you refer to it as a radioactive taxpayer subsidy? It's always troublesome when Ohio is trying to be first in something to be. And House Bill 434, it would create a nuclear development authority. Ohio, as a state government, would actually privatize a regulatory and promotional agency, which you can tell by the way I describe it, is an inherent conflict of interest. In fact, in the mid-70s, the old Atomic Energy Commission was broken up into the Department of Energy and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission precisely because of the widespread uh, view of the AEC as being a cheerleader as well as a regulator. It's a terrible conflict uh, when you're talking about something as serious as uh, nuclear power. 
what's happening in Ohio is that a secret operation, semi-secret operation would be created. A nonprofit corporation chartered by the Ohio General Assembly is the likely place where the Ohio Nuclear Development Authority would be located. It would have a board that would be free to handle, to, to hire and oversee staff. And the first duty, I'm sure, would be the promotion of the advanced nuclear reactor, also known as small modular reactor generation of nuclear power. That is the uh, very trendy move to next generation nuclear power reactors that's starting to be heavily subsidized and certainly peer-led by federal and state agencies. The nonprofit corporation is actually in existence the nonprofit corporation where this would probably be housed. It's called Jobs Ohio, and it was created 10 years ago as a race to the bottom type of business subsidy operation to attract new employment of all forms to the state of Ohio. The state dismantled almost entirely its bureaucratic, regular director of development and and agency overseen by the director of development. The Ohio Nuclear Development Authority would be promoting new types of nuclear development, probably one or more experimental prototypes of the nine or 10 designs that are under consideration. There's not existing staff that would be capable of handling that. So I'm sure that the agency, it would be quite new uh, in terms of having to find people with appropriate backgrounds. The agency would be headed by a board that is appointed by the governor, but the governor does not have much discretion in the appointees. They are actually selected by a pro-industry set of uh, statutorily defined members. And the agency itself, as I say, is not a governmental agency. It will therefore be beyond the reach of Ohio's Open Records Act, which is the state equivalent of the Freedom of Information Act. It would not be subject to the Sunshine Act, which would re- which requires advance notice and disclosure of meetings and agendas of public officials. And the board that I just mentioned would not be governed by the types of ethics, laws, and disclosure requirements or conflict of interest requirements that state authorities and boards are governed. So as I say, it is a nearly secret agency. The budget would be a one blocks on a one-page type of submission every other year, Ohio's on a biennial budget basis, and there would not have to be itemization. And we're talking about taxpayer funding. We're also incidentally talking about a funding setup that similarly to the NRC doesn't appear to rely on licensing types of fees. So this looks like a very open-ended and very uh, summary kind of agency that is rigged for corruption. It sounds like a nuclear industry coup. Absolutely. The, the agency would be empowered to enter into contracts with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the Department of Energy, and interestingly, the Department of Defense. And the committee hearings in the House were not very revelatory at all. Several proponents from a little nonprofit corporation that appears to be headquartered in Cleveland called E-Generation, spoke in favor. They were promoting the fact that this nuclear development authority could oversee the um, development in Ohio of means of generating medical isotopes. And so literally 
Uh, there was a staged question between the chair of the committee in the House and one of the proponents. Literally, if we set up the Ohio Nuclear Development Authority, does that mean that there could be a cure for cancer? Yes. And, you know, that was sort of the, the melodramatic nonsense. This is very, very problematic from a number of standpoints. One of them is that I have to believe that there's been at least some consultation with the federal agencies involved who, uh, from my personal litigation background and experience with DOE and uh, the NRC, would love nothing more than an additional layer of secrecy, an additional means of excluding the public from very serious decisions. And the way this is being billed and sold, the little public discussion that has taken place at all, is that the Ohio Nuclear Development Authority would be a little NRC. It would have plenary regulatory authority. They would have NRC authority within Ohio over the construction design uh, planning of new nuclear power plants. They also would have eminent domain power, which suggests to me that they would want the power to, to condemn land for the siting of facilities as well as transmission lines. So we're talking about a very stealthy kind of proposal that's making its way well beneath the radar. The uh, opposition that we generated, which Pat will hopefully talk about, has largely been exclusive grassroots. You know, we're doing what we can, but it's been very slow uptake by the media, which finally is recognizing it. Mainstream media is recognizing that this is happening, but there hasn't been stunning uh, editorial cries of outrage or anything of that sort. You know, an open-ended agency, secret, beyond the reach of press and public access for records, beyond accountability for, in terms of spending uh, who knows how much by way of taxpayer money, and nobody has any problem with that. With this currently being debated in the Senate Energy and Public Utilities Committee, how close are they to being able to put this through? And when they do, where is the funding going to come from and how are Ohioans going to be on the hook for it? It seems like that will just come from the Ohio Treasury, in other words, the taxpayers. Terry has given a good overview as a lawyer. He knows the, the legal aspects. So what he says is really right on the money. And the fact that there are so many bad bills in the uh, legislature right now, that this one, you know, it just hardly rises to the top of the radar screen. How long will Ohioans pay to keep this authority in business? And what is that going to cost? It's completely open-ended. I mean, that's really the danger of it. When will this sunset and how much will it cost? And we won't know. Terry is a lawyer and has really knows the legal aspects of this. So what he has said is really right on the money legally. And there are so many bad bills in the Ohio legislature right now that this one isn't really rising to attention. So we've got a lot of grassroots people that are interested, and we've been making a lot of calls. We did get a couple of major newspaper articles. In terms of the possibilities of passage, this is an election year in Ohio, and the legislature is about to recess probably until the November election. And what we are very concerned about is that Ohio has super Republican majorities in both houses, considerably more than a mere majority. 
and that in what is called the lame duck session in December is typically when a great deal of unrelated and politically suspect or unpopular matters get taken up and ramrodded through, shepherded through in a very accelerated way, often without committee hearings, and passed as a giant combined, what we call a Christmas tree bill. That's what we anticipate is probably going to happen with this. If the Republicans have the votes, but the fact that there's finally some critical press surfacing it has slowed it down a little bit in terms of optics. Another thing I want to discuss briefly is liability. These projects would not necessarily and automatically be covered by Price-Anderson Act, federal law that, of course, provides a ceiling on liability for DOE contractors or Nuclear Regulatory Commission regulated uh, power plant. And even if it were, the Price-Anderson Act has never provided a penny of coverage for any incident in the United States. Three Mile Island, as I suspect you personally know, Libby, did not trigger Price-Anderson Act. There was a great deal of litigation in the wake of it, but the NRC has to actually declare an extraordinary nuclear event in order to trigger the ceiling, in order for other liability insurance to apply or not to apply. A brief insert here. The Price-Anderson Act provides a system of financial protection for persons who may be liable and persons who may be injured by a nuclear accident. There's no discussion at all in this legislation about what happens. Let me just give you a scenario. The E-Generation group that I mentioned earlier wants to build a molten salt type reactor. That is the prototype they're pursuing. And there has been one example of that type of reactor, an experimental one constructed at Oak Ridge in the 1960s. It operated haltingly for about four years. It had 250 unscheduled transients or breakdowns. Yes. And a core problem, no pun intended, with this type of reactor is that the cooling material is extremely brackish and corrosive and it kept destroying reactor internal parts. In a matter of weeks or months, they were having to replace a great deal of stuff. It was an experimental reactor and that's how you learn. But the point is, it operated for four years. It was roughly the size of a living room and it has been under remediation almost continuously since that time and has cost at least 32 million bucks. So you ask questions about the longitude of a nuclear development authority, and you think about liabilities that, will, that could conceivably go on for generations and millions of dollars, and I have to question what a state government is doing in this business. Plus, one final thing, in the bill, there is no mention whatsoever of what is called a waiver of sovereign immunity. You cannot sue the state of Ohio unless it consents to be sued. In other words, and I might add that Price-Anderson is an example where the federal government has, has taken the doctrine of sovereign immunity and created an exception that there can be claims lodged against the federal government associated with a serious nuclear accident. Ohio is not taking that option. And if Ohio does not consent to be sued and is in effect partnering in a disastrous project, you cannot sue the state of Ohio. And I bet the 
multiple layered LLCs protecting everybody and everything around each of the experimental reactors that would be created in this program, it's another impossible mess where people may suffer serious, serious loss and there is nowhere to turn. The taxpayers not only pay upfront for the build, they pay at the other end for everything bad that could happen. So clean up if there was radioactive contamination through operation, accidents, spills, emissions, anything. That's going to be on the taxpayer's head. That's not going to be covered at all by the companies that built or are running or the state or anything else. It's, it's whole, taxpayer yes. money. The whole creation of Price-Anderson Act in 1957 occurred because the insurance industry said flatly, we will never insure nuclear power. You just won't. And of course, as many people already know, there's an exclusion in your homeowners or your renters policy. They, there is no private insurance coverage. There is Price-Anderson, which is limited insurance coverage, but it requires a triggering, which is a de declaration by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And in, in the case of Ohio, there is no waiver by the state of sovereign immunity. So there is no Price-Anderson. There is nothing. The state is the taxpayer, is or are the taxpayers. So we're the ones that will eventually end up holding the bag. I could add a little bit to what Terry has said about this benefiting a single company. I will name that company. It is E-Generation out of Cleveland. It's a small group. They've had their hand out to the federal government for years with very little success. And there actually have been two previous Ohio bills proposing a nuclear development authority. And in both of those, language was taken directly from the E-Generation website. And it was originally like 56 pages. Now it's down to 14 pages. And eight of those 14 pages are describing that convoluted process that Terry mentioned of figuring out how to keep the public off the board of this authority. There were only seven people that testified in favor of this bill in the House, and five of them have direct ties to this E-generation. One thing that Terry did not mention is the unprecedented use of high-level radioactive waste. The bill would allow the new authority to take high-level radioactive waste from the davis Bessey and Perry reactors in Ohio up there on Lake Erie. And they claim that they'll just take this waste and chop it up and use it directly as fuel in their new reactor. And we all know that irradiated nuclear fuel assemblies, you know, they're the most radioactive entities that exist on Earth. You don't just chop them up like they were celery. And so a complicated reprocess would be needed. And yet the sponsor actually denies that reprocessing is going to happen. Reprocessing has been a disaster wherever in the world it's been tried. In West Valley, New York, it operated for six years, and the Department of Energy placed the cost of cleanup at over $5 billion. Currently, the cleanup's far from complete, and radioactivity is moving toward Lake Erie. And what Pat's talking about, reprocessing is a nice neutral word for basically the reclamation of different isotopes from nuclear waste. Nuclear waste being spent fuel and other material that comes from the reactor. The idea 
this is a story that's being peddled is that basically this will solve our current generation of nuclear reactors, spent fuel, and high-level nuclear waste problem, which is not true. But the point is, is that what they're talking about doing is reclaiming elements like cesium, plutonium, separating them effectively with a complicated and dangerous chemical process and reusing some of those isotopes in reactors, recomposing them as fuel. Part of the problem is that they wouldn't necessarily be using plutonium, but they would be separating it out, making it much easier to be trafficked or to be stolen or simply not properly accounted for in an experimental or commercial next generation nuclear reactor complex and for something like that to become an item of illegal trafficking on global market. Small modular reactor types, several of them actually will be breeder type reactors that will generate plutonium as a, a waste product. This is material that would be desirable, and, and this may be one of the reasons why the Department of Defense would be empowered to contract with this new development authority to acquire the plutonium. The problem, of course, with that is that we're now um, more than 50 years into the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty era, and in 2021 was finally the initial planetary approval by roughly two-thirds of the world's nations of a treaty that abolishes nuclear weapons entirely. So the United States would be going the wrong direction, is going the wrong direction with its policies of nuclear weapons and the probabilities of increased weapons proliferation. This speaks to a commingling of civilian and military activities. Is there a precedent for this? And in your estimation, is this a good thing or not? Well, the precedent was the, the Atomic Energy Commission. And as I indicated earlier, in the mid-70s and 74, the uh, federal law changed to separate the commercial nuclear power sector from the promotion sector, but that didn't solve the, the military connection problem, which has persisted. The problem is, is that this simply takes no note of that. There's nothing wrong in the eyes of the, uh, the people who have written this legislation with having easy access to isotopes. Uh, there's no concern about nuclear safeguards and all that. I remember in the 70s that about 10 kilograms of plutonium disappeared from an NRC inventory in Pennsylvania and were never accounted for. They are believed to have possibly been spirited to Israel as part of their non-admitted but existent weapon. The thing is, is that when you're talking about something as deadly and dangerous as plutonium, you were talking about something that would be highly desirable, a commodity, to some people, to terrorists, to nations that want their own bomb. You look at North Korea, you look at the fear and loathing around Iran, which doesn't have a nuclear weapons program. You look at India and Pakistan, you know, we're talking about a lot of nations arming up. And there's even talk that Ukraine made a big mistake by letting go of the nuclear weapons that were positioned there. It was part of the USSR. So <laughs> nuclear weaponry is all in vogue again. What other manipulations are red flags to you regarding House Bill 434? 
Terry mentioned isotopes, and I'll go into that in a little more detail because this bill mentions just mentions isotopes seven times. And if this were truly about making medical isotopes for cancer detection, there are already three U.S. companies working on making the medical isotope technetium-99. And they're making that using cyclotrons. And cyclotrons are, they're much safer and no nuclear reactors are needed. Cyclotrons can also make isotopes of other elements besides technetium that can be used for cancer screening. So it's not viable. It's not something they're really going to do. They're just using it as, as something that sounds good. And another thing I'll say about this bill is that there's no results required of this company. <laughs> they can spend the money and have as good a time as they want at, at defining its work as research and development. They don't have to show any useful results. We call these often PowerPoint reactors because they're mostly still in the design phase, even if they've gotten that far. They're unbuilt, untried, untested, a lot of these new reactors. And the bottom line is they take over a decade for even the first one to be cited and licensed and built. Let me just point out that there are several states that are clearly watching. The, this is a, I think this is an ALEC thing, an American Legislative Exchange Council proposal, possibly co-authored with the input of, of like the, the Nuclear Energy Institute or the Electric Power Research Institute, the big nuclear lobbies. It's like a dream conceal this in an obscure state agency, and you have no laws apply very well. Let me point out, incidentally, what's really interesting is the conflict of interest law that would govern this is that the appointed members of the authority who are already handpicked by a completely industry-dominated group, the governor picks from a list, any conflicts of interest that are identified by the appointed authority members, they can complain on, but that's it. So there is honor among thieves and who that is appointed to this authority is going to rat out any other members of the authority that have been handpicked by an industry group. And I might also add that the board itself, there are no provisions that delineate what a conflict of interest would be, and there are no provisions that prohibit someone literally from being on a board that hammers out multi-million dollar contracts with firms that they might have a direct or indirect interest in. Again, this is beyond the reach of state official governance of ethics kinds of laws and regs. This is too sweet of a dream for it not to have been a concoction of many self-interest entities. And also, there's a unique thing here in Ohio. You, of course, have heard of the Battelle Institute. The Battelle Institute, which is headquartered in Columbus and was founded in the 30s by a wealthy magnate, it was a very instrumental management planning and design organization in the formulation of the bomb, the, the Manhattan Project. And since that time, in the interceding 75 years, is a major nuclear site manager, I think, for four or five DOE laboratories, the Idaho National Lab, a number of others. So 
you have right there in your backyard, the Battelle Institute, which will have representation on who gets appointed to this board. The Ohio State University Nuclear Department, Nuclear Engineering Department, will have membership on this board. There's no public representation provided for or mandated. It's incredibly incestuous. This is simply, like I said, a great business plan where you plug into the public trough and again, with an almost completely secret budget process and no accountability. This strikes me as the beginning scenes of an old Western movie where a town is so corrupt and so controlled by a few individuals and everything fits for each other that you never think that the people, the good people of the town are going to triumph. And they're just waiting for like, you know, James Stewart or somebody like that to come riding in and make the change. But unfortunately, at this moment, we don't have that sheriff from the outside who can come in and turn things around. Right. The fix is definitely in. Yes. As I say, it's um, it sort of logically fits the entire shell game, the, the, the entire, actually, the snake oil show of the small modular reactor generation. Because there was 50 million bucks budgeted. I, I didn't, I had mixed feelings about Build Back Better not, not getting through Congress. There was $50 billion for small modular reactors in that. We are making decisions that are going to suck up all of the oxygen in the room when we need to be focusing on the enormity of the unfolding climate crisis. You know, we're talking about making choices that will technologically not be around to assist the world through what is going to happen in the next decade. And as though the fountain is endless, as though there is infrastructure of engineers and technocrats and people with the skills to construct these monsters, the whole thought of making this incredible shift at this moment in human history is amazing. And there's, there is a, a great deal of global competition shaping up. There's at least six different countries involved in starting to huckster small modular reactors. Michael Flynn, this graced momentary national security advisor to Trump, was a lobbyist and was, while in his two and a half weeks in the Trump administration, was lobbying with the president to create a bypass around the Atomic Energy Act provision that Congress has to approve their technology because he was lobbying actively and, and paid as a lobbyist for a consortium of nine American companies that intend to design and build small modular reactors. This is the wave. And it's a tidal wave if we can't do anything to stop it. Also of ongoing concern is the Portsmouth nuclear site. What's there and what do we have to be concerned about? Well, there's several things going on there. One of them is that for many years, the facility has had a contractor, a federal contractor, who has been stabilizing depleted uranium for purposes of disposal. But a new production process line has just been completed in, in recent months and has probably started to process an especially pure form of depleted uranium, which is a byproduct of 
the creation in past decades of nuclear power plant fuel. The depleted uranium, the pure form, is planned to be used for components of thermonuclear weapons. Among other things, nose cones. Depleted uranium is extremely heavy, and the smallest nuclear weapon in the American arsenal is called the B-6111. Uh, there's a new version, the B-6112. They are smart bombs, but dropped from a plane. And they are what is called a dial-a-nuke because they can be set, depending on the alignment of components within the bomb itself, to create relatively small nuclear explosions, which are still very, very large, or very, very large nuclear explosions multiples of the Hiroshima or Nagasaki types of blasts. So some of the DU, depleted uranium, will go for thermonuclear weapon nose cones. Some of it will go for internal componentry that actually regulates the size of the explosion. It has to be extremely pure, however, in order to function under the intense heat and pressure of, an on, of a millisecond kind of uh, nuclear explosion. So that's one thing that that is new that's happening there. The other is the high assay, low enriched uranium project. Centrist Corporation is a longtime DOE contractor and they have aligned 16 centrifuges to create as a demonstration, this special nuclear fuel that is supposed to be enriched to 19.75% uranium-235. That is just shy of 20% enriched uranium for fuel in small modular reactors. Your typical Davis Bessie Perry uh, Diablo Canyon type of reactor uses a fuel type that is between 3 and 5% enriched. And this is nearly four times that. And the reason for it is because some of the small modular reactor types will use thorium fuel and thorium fuel is not enrichable in that way and needs a kickstart. So you need unusually high fissionable uranium to get the reactor process going, to get it moving and generate and fission. This again is a nuclear weapons proliferation problem because according to the physicist friends I have who've explained the, the enrichment process to me, getting from two or 3% to 20% is far more difficult and expensive and energy intensive than getting from 20% enriched to 90%. 90% enriched uranium is what is used in conventional nuclear weapons. So again, if you can steal 100 pounds of HALU and enrich it to 90%, you have 20 pounds of 90% high enriched uranium to put in a bomb. So it's problematic. It's also, again, a multi-million dollar demonstration when there are other sources, unfortunately, one of which is Russian or HALU already in the world. But there is incredible emphasis because of the Ukraine war and even before it within the United States for the U.S. to subsidize and resuscitate the national, the American uranium supply chain from mining on reservations 
to the several steps of processing that result in either weapons, material, or nuclear, commercial nuclear power fuel. Again, billions were earmarked within the Build Back Better bill to begin that process, and DOE is shilling separately within its own appropriations requests for money to get the uranium supply chain going. Terry and Wally Taylor have spent many hours on a petition for review to stop this process that's happening at Centris with the HALO, the high assay low enriched uranium, without doing the required programmatic environmental impact statement. They're trying to get around it. They've only done a rubber stamp kind of uh, environmental assessment. Portsmouth is the nuclear site there is, is now set to become a major hub for new nuclear activities around the country. I'll talk first about the dismantling of the uranium enrichment facility, the offsite contamination there. From 1954 to 2001, the uranium enrichment plant there enriched uranium for nuclear bombs and nuclear power. For much of that time, they illegally brought in reprocessed high-level nuclear waste and ran it through the enrichment process. And that contaminated the entire site with plutonium and other radioactive elements that are, are found in nuclear waste. The Portsmouth facility is now a Superfund site under legacy management. And that means they won't have to clean up to Superfund standards. The enrichment process uses much electricity as New York City and the buildings covered almost 100 acres under roof, massive building. That leaves a huge amount of material to go into the on-site disposal facility that's being built there. The Department of Energy, uh, we've complained because they are putting waste into that disposal facility that's far too reactive to be buried above cracked rock and close to an aquifer. So that's what's happening with the disposal. Naturally, when they brought in all that high-level radioactive waste, some of this has migrated off-site. There's no covering for the buildings that are being dismantled. So airborne particulates have increased as these massive buildings are being torn down. First, the Department of Energy said that off-site contamination came from nuclear testing in Nevada. <laughs> I'm sorry. Had to let that one out. And the expert, Dr. Michael Ketterer, analyzed off-site soil samples and identified them as coming from the nuclear site. He has the equipment and the know-how to do this at Northern Arizona University. We've had Dr. Ketterer on the show a number of times, and he's spoken specifically to these points. Now, the Department of Energy says that the levels found are safe. Even though a nearby middle school was permanently closed due to radioactive contamination. Another new project at Portsmouth. In 2020, the Department of Energy awarded nearly $500 million as a grant to support a potential advanced reactor project at the Portsmouth nuclear site. We now know the type of reactor they plan to build is a high temperature gas cooled reactor. Billions of dollars have already been spent in the U.S. on developing this type of reactor with no success. China has built one that has so far failed to come online commercially. If that's not enough, last month an announcement was made of a proposed hydrogen plant at the site. Hydrogen would come from natural gas 
and New Point Gas wants to get the facility online by 2027. Getting hydrogen by removing it from natural gas is horrible enough, but what the announcement did not say is that they would like to use the hydrogen facility to promote building that new nuclear reactor that could make hydrogen either by electrolysis of water or by using the reactor's waste heat. Both of these processes would require huge secondary industries. These are all massively important and really intricate and complex issues. You are both members of the Ohio Nuclear Free Network. What is in front of you in terms of boiling this down to talking points and really getting it into the minds of reporters and through reporters into the public itself so that they can understand enough to be able to fight back? What's in front of us right now is to try to stop House Bill 434. That will at least delay or create some problems for what is they're trying to unfold in the state. We're attempting to publicize things. Uh, as Pat indicated, we're litigating the HALU facility. We're principally demanding that there be an assessment, again, of the nuclear weapons proliferation potential of high-assay, low-enriched uranium. I might add that the actual permit that was submitted by Centris to the Department of Energy indicated they actually may be creating enriched uranium that is at 25 or 26% process fluctuations, they call that. Again, we're talking about stuff that is starting to get creep into the zone of uh, weapons usable material. So what's in front of us is stop House Bill 434 and try to continue on to publicize similar kinds of plans. This is actually the third legislative attempt first one didn't get out of committee. The second one didn't get out of the Ohio House. Now we're at the third shot. The original bill numbered about 55 pages. That was cut back to a, somewhere in the 30-page limit. And now the current House Bill 434 bill that includes very little information spends eight pages on how the board gets selected and six pages on the ability of the agency to contract with federal agencies and doesn't really tell what their process and product will be, but exempts them, as I say, from much accountability to taxpayers and the media. And we would like people to learn as much about House Bill 434 also, because as I indicated, this may be a joint project that's uh, co-sponsored behind the scenes by the American Legislative Exchange Council. And we suspect that other states, Michigan and Indiana being numbered in them, are looking at developing a similar promotional entity that is neither fish nor fowl, but certainly ain't governmental and not accountable, that promotes these very dark suspect technologies. We will, of course, link to the Ohio Nuclear Free Network on our website under this episode. For now, Pat Morida and Terry Lodge, thank you so much for your efforts, for your incredible work, and for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for your interest. Uh, thank you very much for all your work and for having us. Veteran environmental attorney Terry Lodge and Pat Morida, chair of the Ohio Sierra Club Nuclear Issues Committee. 
We'll have a link up to the talking points on Ohio House Bill 434 on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 573. We'll also have a link there to our interview with Dr. Michael Ketterer on the radioactive contamination of the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant in Piketon, Ohio. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. The Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant in California is built, was built adjacent to earthquake faults and needs to be shut down. There's a sign-on letter for organizations that is to demand the just transition and proper closure of Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. We'll have a link up where organizations can sign up and also individuals can follow up on their own. And we'll have a copy of an ad from June 12th in a Detroit newspaper to shut down Fermi 2 nuclear power plant in Michigan, claiming nuclear power is a dead-end climate energy strategy. It calls out to President Joe Biden and Department of Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm and gives information on how and where to contact each. They will be at NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 573. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, June 14, 2022. Our thanks to Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear for the weekly Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week so you don't miss a single episode, it's real easy. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com. There's a yellow box. Put in your first name and email address, and every week you will get the news hot off the, hot off the computer. You're our eyes and ears on the ground, and we rely on what it is you see and hear. So if you have a hot tip, a story lead, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate these weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. It's much better than reaching out on Facebook. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022. Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi, producer host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you the last thing anyone who opposes nuclear wants to be able to say is, I told you so. That's it, your nuclear wake up call. Do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.